Number 12. Managing for the Master. First Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We are starting Lesson 12, Rewards of Faithfulness, in the quarter on Managing for the Master Till He Comes. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Ash is going to offer our opening prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your many blessings. This lesson is about blessings, blessings that come at the restoration. As we consider this time, may we think of it in terms of the restoration of all things, especially that relationship with you that we desire and look forward to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. From Alaska. The previous quarter on the suffering took 14 weeks, so this one has only 12. And so number 12, this one, it's the last one of the quarter, and it's on rewards. Now, how would you end the quarter on stewardship? What would you talk about in your last lesson? Any thoughts, suggestions, Lou? Well, the text that it's more blessed to give than to receive comes to my mind. Okay, which is the only statement of Jesus, which is not found in the Gospels, but in Acts, which makes it interesting. Anyway, the lesson ends on the rewards, and the memory text is Matthew 25, verse 21, which is from the parable of the talents. Bob? Well, to take a shot at trying to answering that question, it seems like God does talk, Christ, part of Godhead does talk about rewards. One of the things that sounds very material is there are many mansions, or we've talked in the past about many rooms in my house or mansions in heaven or whatever one wants to go, but that does sound material. And there are other preferences that make it sound like it's going to be a great place to be in God's kingdom, but there's no guide beyond that. Now, one can look at the heavens from here, stars, and come to the conclusion that God has an enormous realm out there with lots of things to see and do. And no doubt, if God has created us and wants us to be interested in many things, he'll probably have numerous things for us to enjoy and do for eternity, because God wouldn't want it boring or uninteresting. And so if one's looking for intellectual stimulation, probably it's going to be a whole lot more than playing a harp on a cloud. Yes. So why does the Bible, God, Jesus, talk about the rewards? Now, you understand that eternal life is not achieved by what we do. It's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Yet, the Bible speaks about rewards in different places on different occasions. What would be the reason, Neil? Could it be that that's what we're in tune to? Yes, so some people find it motivating. Yeah. And so God says, you know, if you do something, I am going to reward you. Now, interesting, if you have accomplished something, if you have achieved something, it's not because of what you have done. It's the result of God's work of grace in you. Yet, God is going to reward you for what he has done through you. Doesn't that give you a perspective on the graciousness of God? Dan? I think that if one looks at interactions with God, there are several variety of rewards that he suggests. I talk about major worldviews that they are, and it seems to me that God appeals to 
every one of those people with different worldviews. And to me, I think that it shows great flexibility on God's part that he would not be afraid to talk to rules people and say, I've got something for you. For people who are more interested in feelings, that there's going to be great things there. People who are interested in interpersonal relationships, there's going to be great things there for those kind of people. I think he appeals to every major group of people in different ways. And I'm comforted that he is not so exclusive that he just appeals to one narrow spectrum of people. And so, like we said so often in this class, God is very flexible. He's very broad-based. And he has a great comprehension, as the earlier speaker said, on who we are and what our interests are. Okay, thank you, Dan. And Sherry? I think Dan said what I was going to say, and I will add that most parents would understand, because children are very motivated by rewards. They go through stages where they are, and I suppose all of us are to some degree. So God is bowing to our needs and to what helps us learn and grow. Very well. Let's go to Barbara from Alaska. God is speaking to us in a world of sin. And most of us on our own, at least, have not experienced the rewards or the blessing that it is to be generous, to follow God's way. So I think it's a way of him. He tells us it's a reward just so that we'll understand, you know, and then when we experience it, it's something that's beyond understanding. He said, you know, give up everything and follow me. And our natural tendency is, well, that's too much. But people who have given up everything and followed him would say, no, that's not too much. That's not anything. It's worth everything. And so I think he's just using our human language. When he asked the Israelites, save stuff for the poor and take care of the poor. And people will look at your country and say, wow, how wonderful it is. So I think it's his way of kind of explaining to us the benefits of doing things God's way. Or it's natural consequence, I think. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara. So different people get motivated by different things. And if it helps someone, God is going to use that. Thank you. Larry? Does there come a point where doing right, doing your job well, is its own reward? And I don't really need, it's nice for you to commendate me, but is it true that I don't need that? That the satisfaction from having done something correctly, and yes, in Christ's life, there were several occasions where from heaven, the sound came, this is my son, he's done really well, I'm really proud of him. But those weren't really that many or that frequent. So there must be something more, I think, involved in this than just the ultimate reward we so often think of as going to heaven. And it's interesting that those occasions are not so much to boost Jesus' confidence, but Jesus says in John 12, the voice happened for your sake, so that you know that there is God's approval on me. Because, of course, because they don't like what Jesus says, they try to pin it on Belzebub or devil or just his interpretation of Torah is not the right interpretation. And even the supernatural voice, they can confuse with a naturalistic thing. And they say, oh, it, it just was a lightning bolt and it was not a true voice from God. Lou? I don't know where it's found in Ellen White's writings, but she talks about that heaven can begin here, that we can experience in our relationship with him, that we can actually, we shouldn't have to just wait for heaven. She says we can experience heaven here and now. Yep, and if you read John's Gospel, eternal life is a present reality all over through the Gospel of John. So you have it yeah. there that it's something that starts now. Yeah. 
Okay, let's read Matthew 25, the parable of talents. And the memory text is verse 21, as you can see. But so that you have the context, what is this talking about? Let's start with verse 20. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. And here comes the response, which is the memory text. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Excellent. Isn't that nice? Isn't that inspiring? Isn't that encouraging? Now let's read verse 23. And verse 23 is the master's response, a servant who brought two talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Have you noticed anything, Rita? The commendation has nothing to do with the gain. Yes, so the two commendations are identical, word for word. There is no difference in the commendation. So the one who brought five talents gets the same commendation as the one who brought two talents. Interestingly, why did the author choose as a memory text the one who got five? Why didn't he choose the one who got two talents? So that spoils the fun a little bit because you don't get a better commendation if you bring more. The reward is the same for both. And it teaches us that God doesn't expect us to be the best. He just wants us to do our best. And we will come back to the parable later because it has been grossly misunderstood throughout the centuries, throughout the Christianity and throughout the history. And so we'll have a look at actually what is Jesus saying here. But if you look under number three, we covered number two already, discussing why we have the talk of rewards in the Bible and the generosity of God who says, whatever you have accomplished, it's my work in you and through you, yet I am going to reward you for that. So that tells you about the generosity of God. Jim Collins is a leading management and leadership guru. If you are a businessman, you most probably know some of his books. He said, get involved in something that you care so much about that you want to make it the greatest it can possibly be. But do it not because of what you will get out of it. Do it just because it can be done. Don't you like the quote? Jim Collins was one of the first who said, top managers are not motivated by money. They are motivated by what they can achieve. And there was a study of Harvard University Business School, which says that for most people, actually, a job title is more important than the amount of money that they earn. So if you give people a fancy job title, they are willing to work for less money because they appreciate the title more than the amount of remuneration that they get for it. Now, of course, you need to take care of your family. You need to meet your own needs. So if you have a salary that you cannot accomplish that, that's a different story. But it's interesting that even Jim Collins says, actually, for the best managers in the world, money or the reward, monetary reward, is not the strongest motivating factor. Michael. A good friend of mine worked for Rockwell during the Apollo program. And he said, we really regarded what we were doing was very important. 
but we had to check out an eight-hour day and they were done. So he said we would take our time card, check out, and then come back and work another four, five, six hours because it was an important program. They were motivated, not by money. Yep. Dan, Kido? I'm referring back to Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And it's interesting that another characteristic of some of these people who were great leaders is that they characteristically surrounded themselves with people that were very capable. And when they were told how successful they were, frequently they would defer and say, well, it's this person that's around me that's doing this or that. And they frequently were quite reluctant to take the title that they were really that good. And it seems to me that kind of genuine humility really leads to the kind of interpersonal relationships that lead to really good team building. I've often used Collins in that illustration because I think so often in our society, it's about me and how great I am. And let me tell you about me instead of let me tell you about the team or let me tell you about the people I work for. Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, that the memory text is taken from the parable where the commendation is equal for both. Now, of course, if you want to emphasize the rewards, you could have the memory text from Luke 19, where Jesus tells the parable of 10 minas, or 10 pounds, and there the reward, Luke 19, verse 16. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made 10 more pounds. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of 10 cities. And let's read on. Then the second came saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, and you rule over five cities. Then the other came saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. Mm -hmm. So the difference in this parable is that the 10 servants each receives one mina, so they all receive the same thing. They have all the same starting line. While in Matthew, one receives one, the other receives two, and the third one receives five talents. And as I said, we will come back to that later. So how do you reconcile that there is a commendation that corresponds with your achievements? And so the one who received one mina one pound and was able to bring back 10 is in charge of 10 cities, but the one who was able to bring back five is in charge of only five cities. It tells you something about their capacity. I like to say there are 500 member pastors and there are 50 member pastors. You give a 500 member pastor a 500 member church and he can manage it. Give him a 50 member church and in two, three years you will have 500. Give a 50-member pastor, 500-member church, and in two, three years, you, it's down to 50 members because it's the capacity that people have. Let's go to Hebrews 11 because the lesson for Sunday starts with this text, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. So why is it necessary to please God? And then it says, and not only you should please him, but you also need to believe, of course, that he exists, but also that he rewards. Why do you think the author needs to say that? And notice what he says. Abel believed in God and was killed. Enoch believed in God and he was taken into heaven. So if your motivation is on the reward, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be like Abel or do you want to be like Enoch? Dan? Try to answer your question. Why do we have to please God? I'm talking about my relationship with Alyssa, and I see a number of couples here. I think if you're going to sustain a relationship, you want to please the other person. That's just an inherent part of it. And so if we're just in there saying, give me, give me, give me, I don't think that results in much of a relationship. And so God is saying, I want to develop a relationship with you and believe in the gifts that I've given to you. And that's the basis. He's done it first by giving us something. And if we don't believe in that and we don't want to develop a relationship and we're not thankful for it, there's not much of a basis for a relationship. So it seems to me that that text really is not demanding anything. It's just sort of laying out how relationships should exist. And in this particular instance, it's our relationship to Christ. Yes. So if you want to have a relationship with someone, you are looking for their best interest. You want to do something that they enjoy. Larry? It's not that my doing things, I'm doing them to make you happy. It's the fact that the two people who came back who had produced more, I'm fairly certain by just listening to the way it's written that the emotion in their story is different. The one who comes back with nothing more than was given to him really doesn't have a good story to tell. And that can't be pleasing to the person who's listening to it. And when we come back to the story uh, towards the end, you get a different perspective when you realize that the guy got $1.2 million. I remember when I read it as a boy, you feel like I always understood it like one pound coin or five bucks. And you feel like, okay, well, why the big fuss about $5? But when you realize, no, he got $1.2 million. Now, that's a sizable capital. You can do something with $1.2 million, you know, and especially if the story says that he came back after a long time, there is no surprise that he says that could have been worth $5 million by now if you invested in Apple or in Tesla or some other good company, or if you just invested in something else, or even if you gave it to bankers into the money fund account, I would have much more. But have a look at Hebrews 11. Who are the people who pleased God? There is Rahab, Heporne, her vocation is given in Greek as Heporne, so the prostitute who lied to save her own skin, yet she pleased God. Okay, so obviously God is not that difficult to please, and she was rewarded. And as we said in the other lesson, she was rewarded for watching the news, which many conservative Adventists would not approve. But by watching the news, she learned something about the God of Israel, and she was rewarded. Rita? I wonder if what is being said here is that it's our faith that pleases God. Not that we have to have faith to do things to please God. And if you come to God, it must go without saying that you believe there is a God, otherwise you wouldn't come to him. And if you believe that he exists, 
and you have the faith that he has something better in store. That's what the reward is, that there's something better in store in the future. And isn't that what all those heroes of faith were commended for? Why they're there? Because they believed there was something better. They believed there was a God, there is a God, and that there was something better in the future. And they got a different perspective on the present because of the future, because they believe there is something in the future worth looking forward to that influenced how they perceived, how they processed, how they lived in the present. And in a world where people have a cyclical worldview, this is something very important. There is a future worth looking forward to. There is a future worth sacrificing for. And having the quarter on stewardship and money management in life, there are certain things that you cannot afford now or tomorrow, but you can afford them in a year, in two years, in five years' time, if you are willing to sacrifice today and put aside certain amount of money so that you can buy things a year, five years from now that you cannot buy today. And it's this long-term thinking that separates you from animals or people who only go for the immediate satisfaction. Iris? I struggle a little bit with the money metaphor for one reason, and that is it's sort of the motivation aspect Seeking God for what we can get out of him. <laughs> I wonder if that is really the issue or whether this Hebrews text rather addresses that after the fall, human beings have a bent towards, by default, not trusting God. I think that's really our starting point. By default, we are suspicious. Even if we acknowledge that there must be God because it's just so mind-boggling how amazingly wise everything is made, but we still cannot conclude from nature necessarily that God is good. And I think the people that show up in Hebrews 11 are people who have embraced a different picture of God. They have embraced a picture of God that they approached God in a trusting position, that they approached God believing that he would be merciful to them, that he is trustworthy. And I think that is the amazing thing about Rahab, that she dared to believe that this God of the foreign nation of Israel would do good to her if she approached him. Because otherwise, what you pointed out with Abel, if you just are motivated by getting something out of God, your calculation may not add up. <laughs> and I don't think that is what motivated Abel, but the picture of God, that there is something inherently worthwhile in pursuing God. And that's who God is at the core. Yeah. And look at Isaac, verse 20. He's commended that he blessed Jacob and Esau, both of them. It took that little to please God. <laughs> so he's not difficult to please. Julie? This is basically just the same thing Iris said in a way. I think in the verse itself, it implies that the reward in this case is, if you're diligently seeking something, the reward is to find that something. So they were finding God in the process. It didn't matter whether the earthly result was Abel dying or Enoch going to stay with God. Either one of them, either case, God rewarded by bringing them into relationship with him in a special way. Yes. Thank you, Larry. Enoch, was his reward going to heaven or was his reward every day that he got to spend time with God? Was 
Cain's reward, the fact that he spent every day not with God, and therefore he lived an equally miserable existence that was the opposite of the joyous existence that his brother was living. So these things that we talk about as rewards, I try to bring them to something that's more practical. And each day of being involved with God is its own reward. Okay, thank you. So Monday's lesson speaks about the fact that the reward is going to be eternal life. So Romans 6.23 and John 3.16. Now let's read John 14, which has often been used as a motivating factor regarding the reward. John 14.1-3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, one of the most misunderstood texts in the history of Christianity, the dwelling places. It's not the best translation, of course, of the Greek. So the singular is mone, and here it uses the plural monai. And it's the same like saying there are many rooms in a hotel, in an inn. Okay, so basically what Jesus says, don't worry, anybody can be there. There is plenty of room. (laughs) Anybody who wants to be there will be there. So it has nothing to do with the mansion. And as we mentioned in the previous lesson, those TV evangelists who indicate that the beauty or the size of your mansion depends on the size of your contribution towards my ministry. It's spiritual abuse because having the treasure in heaven has nothing to do with the size that you live in a slum here, but you will get a mansion there. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that he prepares something, that his activity is not going to be wasted. He's going to come again, and the return of Jesus is the occasion for the unveiling of what has been prepared. And there is plenty of room for everybody, so nobody will be excluded on the fact or on the basis that just was not enough space, not enough room there. And of course, many Christians assume, based on the Greek worldview, that we are going home, our heavenly home, etc. But if you read Revelation 21, then the new Jerusalem descends on this earth, and the unveiling will be on earth, where you will be with Christ for all eternity, because God takes residence on this planet. And so this idea, you just lost your heavenly mansion, so I'm sorry to break the news to you, but A, it's not in the text, and B, it's not part of the biblical worldview. It's part of medieval escapism. And Jesus is not talking about what happens when you die. Jesus is talking about the eschatological perspective of the storyline, so it's not a reference to heaven, but it refers to the entire cosmos, because heaven and earth are all together described as God's house or God's temple in Isaiah 66.1. So he created heaven and earth, and all together they are the part of the biblical worldview. And so the second coming of Jesus brings unveiling and concluding of the job that he is doing on our behalf. And there's plenty of space, plenty of room for everybody. And if anybody wants to be there, can be there. Just as Hebrews 11 says, yes, these have been the heroes of faith, but they are not that different from you. And God has a place for you. 
and the last verses of Hebrews 11, verse 39. Yet all these, although they were commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better, so that they would not, without us, be made perfect. So they have not received the final reward yet, because we will all receive it together at the second coming. And so it's a community reward. It's not an individual reward. Which brings us back to the parable, the one who brought five talents or ten talents altogether got the same reward as the one who got four talents back. And the parable of the vineyard, those who worked 12 hours got one denarius, just like those who worked one hour. Peter, the one who will be saved five minutes before the close of probation, will get the same reward as you who were the first pope and there from the beginning, because they will be all happy to be with Jesus. It's based on the relationship, not about the magnitude or the extent of your service. All right, let's go to Revelation 21, and let's read verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. So you need to know that verse 4, death will be no more, is the seventh no more in the book of Revelation. So you have six no more in Revelation 18, 21 to 23. And so this is the seventh, the completed no more, and it indicates the end of death. And it shows that the powers of evil, whether it was Rome, whether it was whatever power in the Middle Ages or the end of ages, whatever kind of beast it was, ultimately it was an agent of death. So they will not be able to hurt and destroy the economy of extraction left behind those without life resources. But God is working on the economy of restoration. And the restoration is for the community because the new Jerusalem is the bride. The city is the community. So what strikes you about the description of new Jerusalem in relationship to money, possession, stewardship? And what we talked about for the last 12 lessons. Who will be there? Who participates, benefits in these rewards? Yes, Terry? Well, God does. He celebrates and participates with his family coming sure. back to this earth to live here. But who will occupy the new Jerusalem? Who will be part of that? Those whose names are written in the book of life. Okay, so it's not based on your economical Prowess on your achievement is based on your relationship with God. It's not based on hoarding or accumulation. It's not based on your account, how much you got. It's based on your relationship. Michael? Yeah, those who want to be, who want to yeah. have a relationship with God, that's who's going to be there. There's the ones whose names are listed in the book of life. That's right. And that's back a reference to John 14. There is enough space. There are enough rooms. Everybody who wants to be there will be there. Nobody's excluded because they were not able to accumulate enough to get the entry, to pay for the entry. 
Anything else that strikes you there? And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. All things new means the old economy, old power of death has lost its force. The new regime is not going to displace, is not going to expel, is not going to extract, is not going to make people poor, oppressed, slaves. The newness is more than economic, but definitely the old Egypt is not anymore that oppresses people, that some people get richer and some people get enslaved. Anything else that strikes you? Now, Larry? In thinking about the New Jerusalem, I'm not specifically attracted to city living. Uh, now, my wife is, but I'm not so much. So for me, the New Jerusalem needs to be something like Yosemite Valley. That would be awesome. Some of the pictures that Rusty posts of sunrises in Hawaii, I'm all aboard for living there, not so much in a city. But when the city is described the way it is, I get the impression that number one, it's never going to go away because it's way too big. And number two, anybody, you're free to come in and go and to move about. There's no restriction. We who are free people and believe that we are, how oppressive the controlling society or the not nice guy group of people who really want to control and eliminate. So I see this as the huge contrast between all of that. And for those of us today, that has a lot more meaning than maybe it would have if we were studying this five years ago. Yeah, yeah. However, if your ideal is country living, what does the fact that the story starts in a garden but ends in a city imply to you? It shows you that even God cannot go back. See, for so many people today, the solution is we just need to go back. We need to go back before 1950s when the brethren started discussion with evangelicals and betrayed Adventism. We need to go back before Minneapolis. We need to go back to early Adventists, the days of pioneers. We need to go back to the Reformation roots. We need to go back to early the perfect church. You know, we need to go back. And the solution is always good old days. And the Bible shows there is no such thing as good old days. You cannot go back. Even God cannot go back. The new Jerusalem is the culmination of a journey. And you need to keep moving forward because God moves forward. Remember when people say, let's call the fire from heaven because Elijah did in his time. And Jesus says, God has moved on. You cannot go back. You need to go forward. Look at what the son of man is doing who came to seek and save, not to destroy. Aris, you put an important comment in the chat. And of course, those who listen to the recording, they do not have the chat. So can you say it for the benefits of everybody? It was in response to the question, what is the reward? And, and it relates to the new Jerusalem. Exactly. A spin off this verse three. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will be with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So God himself is the reward. He is moving in with us. I mean, this is hard to take in. We were the rebels. We bought into the lie. We rejected relationship with him and we were converts. We realized we were wrong. We were lied to and we started trusting him. And now, after we have seen how detrimental sin is, what it does, that we have truly the capacity to do in this entire beautiful world, the beautiful creation that God created, we are messing it up. 
so bad that this planet is almost becoming uninhabitable. And God rewards those who trust him by moving in with them. So he is the reward. And I cannot think of anything more beautiful. That union with God himself, that's the reward. Yeah. And Rodney, the idea of the New Jerusalem and the fellowship, it appeals so much to our imagination. And I like the idea of it as a reward because it's something that you look forward to and it helps you to reset yourself to be part of it. You want to be part of a grand celebration and especially when God himself is amidst his people. And to do that, you have to prepare for now. How can I make it to that? And it gives inspiration and opportunity for exercising faith to be there. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And Rodney, I expected that you will mention the free water, the access to free water for everybody. For most of us from the first world, we take that for granted. But do you realize that most people in the world, they don't have access to clean and running water? And do you know what's the description of New Jerusalem? The river of life. And everybody has access to it. Can you see the economical terms in the quarter on stewardship? How important that is? Terry? Well, when I looked at the new heaven and new earth, because the first heaven and earth had passed away, it seemed to me that there has been a long and horrible interruption to what God wanted and intended in the first place. And then here with a new heaven and a new earth, God finally gets to continue on with what he wanted in the first place, what his intention was in the first place to be with his people with no veil or no know anything in between and live and have an abundance of everything, of love and resources and community and relationships. Mm -hmm. And water and fruit. And remember 22.2 and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Remember the end of Genesis, the nation of Egypt and the oppression. Why do you need the healing of nations? Now, Jay Brand put it already in the chat so well that the emphasis is on healing of brokenness rather than punishment. Can you see in the healing of nations, no more superpower, no more one player who calls the shots and everybody else needs to submit, but the healing of nations, the nations enjoy a healthy coexistence. Remember when John writes this, Rome was the single superpower of his world and it was not a good power. It was an oppressive power. And of course, it was not the last superpower. They came others after imperial Rome. But John says, there is going to be the healing of nations. There is going to be no more superpowers who will exploit, no more economy of extraction. Everybody will be blessed. Everybody will benefit. All right. First Timothy 6, verses 6 to 12. The Thursday lesson, the whole quarter concludes on keep your eyes on the prize. Don't lose the sight of the reward. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Okay, so keep your eyes on the prize. Make sure that you don't get entangled with the temptations of riches and harmful desires that will bring ruin and destruction because money and riches and possessions can be a source of blessing, but can they can also be the source of family feuds, destruction, broken relationships, ruin, but you keep your eyes on something more important. Can you see the value of that? Though reward is not the main motivator for many people, especially depending on the stages of faith, where you are on the journey, but it's a valuable advice, an inspired advice, because so many people would be better off if they heeded that because of where they are. All right. Let's go back to Matthew 25. And my suggestion is that you end the lesson and the quarter on the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Now, why is the parable important in the context of money and possession? You need to realize that when Jesus tells a parable, it's what it is. It's a parable. There was a man who was a really wealthy man, and he's going on the journey. And so he calls three of his trusted servants and entrusts his property, his wealth, to them. And the important key word is entrust. It's crucial for understanding. It does not simply mean to hold, to keep safe. Just make sure you don't lose it. It means, hey, servants, I'm entrusting my property to you specifically. I'm relinquishing it into your care. So manage my wealth the way I would. I want you to think what I would do with it. I want you to invest it somewhere and make it grow like I would have done. You have seen what I did for you these last three years, how Jesus invested in his disciples. Now, this is where we need to explain a little bit. Because when it says parable of the talents in your Bible, we usually think about talent like writing a song or being able to dance or playing tennis or a gift or skill that somebody possesses. But talent in the time of Jesus was a sum of money. And so the Greek word talanton, it's 80 pounds or 36 kilograms, if you think metric, of silver. Now, the problem is that if you just calculate it in silver, it distorts because it does not reflect the buying power. You need to know that the talent was worth 6,000 denarii. And denarius was a payment for 12 hours of hard manual labor. If we have about 260 working days in a year, then 6,000 denarii is 23 years of work. And if I take, the, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the national average salary in the U.S. in 2022 is $53,490 per year, that means that the guy who got one talent got 1.2 million. The guy who got two talents got 2.46 million. And the guy who got five talents got 6.1 million. Now, whether you are in Tennessee or even in California, this is a sizable amount of money. 
you can do something with that capital. And that's what Jesus says, that anybody who listens to him and says, and there was a guy who got $1.2 million. Somebody says, but nobody, wait a minute, Jesus, no master would ever give a slave $1.2 or $2.4 or $6 million. And Jesus says, yeah, I know, it's a parable. Chill out. There's a point coming. Hold on. And notice what the text says. And immediately they went away and started doing something. Now, what I would expect is that they start complaining and comparing and say, this is not fair. How come he got five? I got only one. How come he got two? You know, they all start working and start investing. And of course, then you read in verse 18, but the man who received one talent, he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now you understand who would do that with $1.2 million. And of course, Jesus would say nobody would because it's a parable. There is a point, keep listening. And what is the point? Verse 19, after a long time. This is an important thing. It's going to take longer than you expect. After a really long time, such a long time that the servants were wondering, if this guy ever coming back, after a long time, the master returned. And he says, what have you done with what I entrusted you? Remember, the key word is entrust. I entrusted it in you. Just as I have invested in you for three and a half years, you are to invest on my behalf. Now, and here comes the bottom line. If you look in number nine, most people look at Christianity as a kind of a heavenly exam. God left the textbook behind. That's the Bible. You are supposed to study it. You are supposed to discover the rules to keep and things to do and things not to do. And one day he will come and set the final examination and see who passes and who fails. And there will be especially good things in store for people who get good grades and especially bad people for those who get bad grades. And that's why it's so important that we read in Revelation 21, it's not about the rewards. It's not about the punishment. It's about healing the brokenness. And Christians throughout the centuries read the parable in a way that reinforces this idea of celestial exam. But when you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He warned the scribes and the Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes who have failed any exam that the Pharisees prepared and said they would be in the kingdom ahead of them. If you read chapter 23 of Matthew, the whole chapter is telling off the self-appointed leaders of true religion and saying, guys, you are not going to make it. And so the parable is not that on the return of Jesus, you are going to be judged on how you performed. And how do we know that? We know that how he rebukes the servant who just dug the hole and put $1.2 million there. He says, you are wicked, worthless, wicked man, lazy slave. You could have put my money into the bank and I would have some interest. And then he says, take money from this man because any person who uses wealth that was given to him or her will be given more and there will be abundance. What's the key word of the economy of God? Abundance. But the person who is unfaithful, even with the little responsibility that he or she has, it will be taken away. Now, you could have bought a house for $1.2 million. And now, after many, many years, I would have a nice profit. Now, the inflation has eaten away my money and they lost their value because you didn't do anything, because of your slothfulness, your irresponsibility. You didn't use the opportunity that I gave you. You wasted it. And of course, you need to see it in the context of Matthew 24, the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the temple 
is the result of you wasted the revelation and the generosity that God shared on you. Instead of sharing it with others and blessing others, you completely wasted it. And when he says in verse 28, take the bag of gold and give it to the one who already has 10, you say, wait a minute, Jesus, this is not fair. Why would you give the one talent to the guy who already has 10? And of course, if you read it from the Marxist economy, it's not fair. But it's a parable. It's not about fairness. It's about something completely different. And the point of the parable is in verse 29. For the person that uses well that was given to him will have more. There will be abundance. That's what God is all about. He invested in you. He gave you certain capabilities, certain talents, certain options, opportunities, and he wants other people to be blessed. Isn't that what being the true son of Abraham means? You are here to bless somebody else. Doesn't mean that whoever has a lot of possession will be given more possession. Just concludes by saying, throw the worthless servant outside because he was in the inner circle. He had the prime opportunity to use what God has given to him to do some greater good for the master to bless other people, but he wasted the opportunity. And so he's not part of the inner circle anymore. He's moving into the outward circle. And you know that this is the intention of the parable, that it's not about the heavenly exam, not only from the fact how he treats these servants that he rebukes, but especially as we indicated in the memory text, how he rewards the two servants. The first one comes and the two commendations are completely identical. They are exactly the same because Jesus gave the same words of praise to the servants who brought back 10 talents as the servant who brought back just four talents. Because God does not require that we be the best, only that we do our best. God expects a different thing from me than he expects from you, from her, than from him. He just expects that we are all faithful in what we have. And here's the point. It doesn't matter whether you have 1.2 million or 6.1 million dollars. It's just that you and I have opportunities. And the question is, how are we going to use them to bless somebody else? And that's what is it all about. Larry? I really appreciate the way you've described that. Thank you. Especially adding in and focusing on the length of time, because I think most for myself, I've missed that, the implication of how long. Graham used to talk about people who are safe to save and doing right because it is right. And that is its own reward. And the doing the right thing is its own reward. And when you think about the amount of time that the servant who lived in fear, because he clearly states how he views his relationship to his master. He is not somebody that he admires. And he says, you take things that don't belong to you. You're not a nice guy. I was afraid of what you were going to do to me. Imagine an extended period of time living with that over your head. He could not have had a joyful existence. And so the focusing on how the moment is when you're doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing and the joy that you achieve and receive at that moment for what you've done is, I think, a big part of this whole lesson. And I really like how you said all that. Thank you. Rita? Yeah, I was just wondering whether the servant who'd been given the one talent just felt in some way that his master was extremely wealthy. I think what we haven't really realised until you actually put it into the context of current dollars and cents, not realised just how wealthy the master was. He had that amount of wealth too. 
and trust to servants. And the one who only had one may also have felt that you've got all you need. I don't need to do anything with this. I don't know what you're playing at. Yeah, and that's the point of the parable, that everybody would say, come on, nobody would be that generous. <laughs> you would not give 1.2 million to a slave who wouldn't know what to do with it. And that's the picture of God. God is that generous. He has unlimited resources. He gives you even 6 million. Once again, based on the capacity, because even God cannot pour a gallon into a little cup. And he knows this guy has the capacity of 1.2, this one has capacity 2.4, and the other has the capacity 6.5. And your job in life is not to compare yourself with somebody else. Your job in life is to make sure you are the blessing for someone else, that you live a generous life like the master who is generous with you. Michael? God does not want us to be good. And by being good, I mean doing good things blind obedience or fear. He wants us to do it because it's good for ourselves. If you're kind to other people, you get a reward just from being kind. And if you're thoughtful of other people and other situations around you, it benefits me to do those kinds of things. I get a reward immediately from that. And that's when Jesus said, I want you to love everyone. He didn't mean just certain people. He meant literally everyone. Thank you. Karen? When we have an insight into God's extravagant generosity, it inspires us to be so joyful and content. And then we can open our arms wide to receive generously from God so that we can share those blessings with others and they can see how amazing God is and how generous he is and how extravagant. And then when they do that as well, then it multiplies extravagantly throughout our communities and creates an amazing economy of generosity. But it has to start with us. If we start to be aware and be open to God's generosity and share it with others, then that can spark that process. So you can end the quarter on give us your money, otherwise you are in trouble, and God will come and settle the accounts. Or you can end the quarter by saying, one day when your time on this earth is over and you meet Jesus face to face, and the two of you will go through the slideshow or the DVD of your life, what do you want his reaction to be? Don't you want for Jesus to put his arms around you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I am so proud of you. I am so impressed with you. I want you to share in your master's happiness because he still has no greater joy than turning the servants into daughters and sons and sons and daughters into friends who understand that the fellowship with him is the greatest reward. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, for 12 weeks, we have been studying what it means to be stewards of all the things that you have entrusted us. And yes, depending on where we live in this world and the conditions in which we have been born and the effort that we put in and the conditions which are beyond our influence and reach, we have different talents, different resources, yet we are incredibly blessed, each one of us. And we pray that somehow, as a result of these 12 weeks of study, we do not just compare ourselves with somebody else and envy those who have more or feel smug about those who have less than us, but that first and foremost, we see how generous you are incredibly with each one of us and how we can multiply that extravagant generosity throughout our community so that other people are blessed and see who you are, what you want to do with each one of us and through us so that when you come back, all redeemed can rejoice that finally the sin is healed, the curse is removed, and we will see you face to face and spend eternity with a generous and loving God who wants us to be his friends. 
his daughters, his sons, who wants to spend eternity living together with him on the renewed planet. We thank you for that picture in Jesus' name. Amen.